Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, Ecclesiastes 1 is where we'll pick off. Context for this is that King Solomon has taken rule. He's gotten old and gray, and he sits, and he's, in his whole life he's written things. Song of Solomon, the Proverbs, and he's sitting down saying, I need to write my own story a little bit and tell it and so that he could leave it for future generations. This is the advice of Grandpa Solomon. He's lived his life. He's, he's an experienced person. Uh, and he's testing what the world has to offer. He is uh, the most wealthy man the world has ever seen, according to the Bible. And he's also the wisest person that the world's ever seen. But wisdom didn't stop him from sin. Knowing the right thing to do and doing the right thing are two opposite things. So Solomon has his fallings and his failings. And what we're going to see in these worldly pursuits is kind of the stages of life or the, the worldviews that people take throughout their lifetime. And if your goal is maturity and, and getting as close to a grace-filled life as you can get, the quicker you can move through some of these philosophies, the quicker you're going to gain wisdom like Solomon did. But that, won't, that doesn't solve the spiritual issues of life, but at least it solves the earthly wisdom parts of life. So Ecclesiastes, in that sense, um, looks at foolish living, but gives it the credence of a philosophical review. Let's look at living like an idiot and see if it holds up. And it gives it kind of an honest take. And then it looks at, like, let's look at workaholics. Let's look at wealth. Let's look at sex, excess. Let's look at despair and just being despondent. Let's look at all these worldviews at face value and see if they hold up. Maybe they're the right way to go. Maybe we should be all fatalist and throw our arms up and, and say it's not worth the effort. We all live and we all die until Jesus breaks the rule of that. But when Solomon's writing, nobody's, like, conquered sin and death. So if that's the case, and we don't start from God's revelation, say, let's take Genesis, let's take the Torah, let's take all of the, the, the prophecies that Solomon had up to his point, let's set everything that's been revealed by God to the side and just look at life through a worldly perspective. So, it, so and, and I won't say atheists, because frankly, there weren't atheists until like 200 years ago. Like, it was ridiculous to think that this place wasn't created by a god. So the idea of atheism really wasn't a worldview that Solomon wrestles with because it's, it was such a preposterous idea that it wasn't even something that was considered. But considering life without living for God is something that people have done and will always do. So um, that said, Ecclesiastes becomes the most misquoted book of the Bible. So when I got to teach, when I was first asked to teach in a church setting, like, I was joking when I went to the pastor and I said, well, can I do Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon? Because, like, those are the two books you don't want to have to be in front of people teaching. And he, like, looked at me with a straight face and he said, Ecclesiastes. You can do Ecclesiastes. So, and, and I thought, well, what a neat opportunity because you're actually teaching about worldviews that don't align with the Christian worldview. For me, being a philosophy major back as an undergrad, I loved this. I loved that the Bible had a book for me that let's just do this through straight reason and nothing else. 
Like, does it hold up on its own two feet? So it starts with verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is Solomon, but he doesn't name himself. He just calls himself the preacher. Uh, I think it's because this is an exercise. Like, he's going to say a lot of things that he doesn't agree with, but he's going to philosophically work through them one by one. So he calls himself the preacher. Um, and in that sense, he's giving kind of his own caution about the book and, and we'll get to these verses, but obviously if you take them out of context, this isn't what the Bible is teaching, but it is a, a preaching. It is a message that should be seen as one whole verse two vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So right in verse two, we get our first verse that is not necessarily a biblical worldview. Right? The, biblical, the Bible as a whole does not say that all of life is just vanity. Vanity being um, the idea that or, or hebel is vapor in the Hebrew, and it means emptiness or things that people that pursue in life that have no meaning. And the, the best example of this, I think, is we worship anything, but it doesn't always have to be something that's of value. So when we go about and do our worship, to think about that. And Solomon's first premise of the entire book is all of this life is simply us thinking more of ourselves than we are. It's all vanity. And so let's kind of work through each of those things. The preacher there is Koaleth, uh, a, technically a collector of sentences, a speaker, not a scribe, but sentences are things of the air, things that they're collected, but they're not necessarily put down on paper. So a preacher speaks, but they're not somebody who writes. So he's when he starts this out, he does that. The, the idea of um, this word preacher, this, this koaleth, it's only used in Ecclesiastes. And it's somebody who would provide, preside over an assembly of people and gather the opinions of all these people. So you can start to see what the book is. In the Greek, that word is ecclesia, which is where we get the name of the book, Ecclesiastes. It's a gathering of all the world's opinions in one book. Let's take all the philosophies of the world and take a look at them. Deuteronomy, they've moved me to jealousy. That what With that which is not God, they've provoked me to anger with their vanities. The idea of vanity is an established idea in the Hebrew tradition at this point because Deuteronomy talks about it. So when he the preacher is preaching, he's preaching from within that cultural perspective. That word has meaning or spiritual meaning. There is a spiritual life that's a vapor. It doesn't have any value to it or no weight to it. So Ecclesiastes is a book that's going to, about the alternative to living life for God. What other options are they? So um, it could be, some people believe Ecclesiastes is Solomon's response to another piece of writing in the Egyptian culture called The Man Who Is Tired of Life. It was written about 2200 BC. It was fairly contemporary with Solomon. And it could be that Ecclesiastes was a response to an Egyptian philosophical work, right? So Here's what we look like. And I think Solomon's response to that is to start by giving it a credence. Like, here's what this book argues and it says. But I don't know if that pulls away from Ecclesiastes. To me, that further roots Ecclesiastes as a worldly philosophy book, right? And Solomon's contributing something that speaks to the world. Um, it is also then, at the end, a book about repentance and about an, an alternative that works. So Solomon takes a long, hard look at life no revelation, just logic as, as was in the ancient world was treated. Verse 3, what profit, what value has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Our lives come and go, we work, we labor, and it's nothing. We get the first time of this phrase, under the sun. It's going to get used 25 times. 
Under the sun is our key to know that this is everything that would be earthly in thinking. The sun being an image of the heavenly thinking or God-based thinking and under the sun being just from here on the earth. It's rooted in this earthly perspective. Verse 4. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and again it comes, on its, and it comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. I used to, growing up, we're out in Glacier, we see these beautiful rivers flowing through the place. And I used to think, what if, where does the water come from? Like, why doesn't it run out? And Solomon's just saying, like, the earth has a cycle to it. And everything just rolls and it keeps going. And scientists have figured out where the water comes from on that. So I've been satisfied with my answer to that question. But there's still that idea of, like, it all just keeps going. How does water keep pouring into the ocean and the ocean never fills up? And what, and what is this? So there's these kind of ideas. But verses 4 through 7 are, are the starting premise. Nothing changes on the planet. It seems to be cyclical. A lot of the pagan religions around Solomon at the time had circular theology. Not in a logical framework, like not logically circular, but it was a, a theology of everything goes in cycles. It's why they worshipped snakes and spiders. Snakes would shed their skins, and there's still a snake there. And it looks like the same kind of cycle kind of thinking. Spiders would die, and then there would be a billion spiders that would come out of their eggs. And everything was secular. So they'd fill their pagan temples up with these kinds of spiders and snakes and things like that because of the image of circular or cyclical worldview. Everything's a cycle. Everything returns on itself. Everything's a wheel of time, says Robert Jordan. Right? It all begins and ends at the same time. And so this image of, of this rotating planet, Solomon starts with that because it's a very popular worldview, and it still is amongst non, non-Judeo-Christian cultures. All things are full of labor, verse 8. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It's already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor there will, be, will there be any remembrance of the things that are to come by those who will come after. Nothing new happens. All right, so Ecclesiastes gets a little depressing on this. Humans often think that they're doing something new and creative. They're not. Even like cross-dressing, it's not new. Check out ancient Egypt. They did it all. They even dressed up like animals and wore little animal masks. This is not new behavior. Humans do this stuff because they, under the sun, there's nothing else to live for. So they create extreme situations so they can maybe feel alive. It's why I think people do self-harm. Like if you can't feel anything and you're numb, maybe burning yourself or poking a needle will actually have some sort of feeling that emerges from that. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all boring and it's all tired. What a great way to start our day, right? So he brings the conclusion out front. This is where we get kind of modern academic writing style. This is his thesis statement. Now, you can see where when it says um, that which is done will be done and there is nothing new under the sun, you could see where you could take verse 9 and be like, see, the Bible says, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what the Bible says. This is quite the opposite of the thesis of the book, but this is where we start Ecclesiastes. It's a good philosophy paper. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. That's where he's coming from. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that was done under heaven. So he's 
limiting this study to one that does not rely on God's spoken word or revelation. He can't use the Torah. He can't use direct revelation from God. It has to be under the sun. This burdensome task God has given the sons of man by which they may be exercised. This is something that we're going to practice. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. So when he sets this up, he's seeing this as like a burdensome task. And, and even going back to verse 8, all this labor, but we never seem to be done with it. Just like the rivers run to the sea and the ocean never fills up. All the things that we can see, but we're never satisfied. There's all these things we can hear, but, we, but our ears are never filled up. And it looks just like the planet Earth. We have this eternal desire and for to consumption, and it can't be fulfilled. So this is the burdensome task of verse 13. How do we start to get to a point where maybe our ears will get filled? Maybe we'll have heard the answer. Maybe we'll have seen what is true. And so there's this thing that humans have that we're put on this earth, but we don't have all the answers just immediately put in front of us. So we're given this exercise that we have to go through, or, or, or all is vanity or grasping for the wind. This is where we get the phrase inherit the wind, right? I can leave everything to Grant, and all I'm leaving is wind right? A bag full of hot air. And Grant, eventually, as he grows into adult, realizes my dad is full of hot air. You have to figure this out for yourself. You can't do it through your parents. Verse 14, I've seen all the works. I don't think Solomon's bragging here. He's the wealthiest man the world's ever seen. If it's weird and crazy and nutty, he's experienced. He had over a thousand wives from a number of different cultures. He's seen every religion, every idol, every practice, and part of Solomon brought those into his home. The Bible says they're part of what corrupted him. They led him astray, but he's seen it, and he's experienced it. There's nothing that we think we can experience that Solomon hasn't seen or experienced. He's been to the orgy. He's gone to the, the violent um, killing of people situations for sport and for game. He's done everything that humans can come up with that are corrupt, or at least that's the claim. And all of it seems to be vain or grasping for the wind. None of it seems to carry somebody through death, right? And that there's this crookedness. What is crooked can't be made straight. On our efforts alone, it doesn't seem like humans know how to make things right. And I don't need to really back that up. Just watch the news. We don't know how to do it. And we've tried again and again and again as a planet. And there's more evidence for that today than there was when Solomon wrote this. Humans don't seem to know how to make straight paths. We seem to make a mess of everything. And without meaning, we kind of lack all these things. So, point number two, life kind of sucks, right? It doesn't mean much, and it kind of sucks. Again, these are just great starting out the day thing. There's nothing new. There's nothing fancy. Verse 16, I communed with my heart. He's not communing with God. He's communing with his own heart. He's thinking really hard, saying, look, I've attained greatness, and I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I've set my heart to know wisdom and, know, and to know madness and folly. That's not a biblical reference that we should all pursue madness and folly. He's saying, I've done it all, and I've seen it all. I perceived that, that this also is grasping for the wind. There's something about our own intellect that doesn't cross the bridge, and it doesn't get there. But we're going to go through the exercise. If anybody's qualified to do this, it's Solomon. I thought this was a great place to bring in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. Like, this is how the Bible describes Solomon as a character. If you don't know much about him, this is worth just adding. 
God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and the largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and of all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, than Heman, Chalcol, than Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees. He was a biologist. He spoke of the cedar tree from Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of animals. He was a zoologist, of birds, of creeping things, of fish, and men of all nations, and the kings of all earth. He was a political scientist who had heard his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon was a lifetime learner. If it was interesting, he would learn it, and he would ask questions. And the more people he gathered around him, the more he could learn and the more he could figure out. If anybody could make sense of the world, it's Solomon. And he had unlimited wealth, like the kind of wealth, I, I won't read that passage, but he, was, he had the money he needed to do whatever he wanted, and he used it. So he'll go through all these dispositions. He's even going to consider madness as a viable, let's take a look at madness. Maybe madness is the right way to go. Maybe it's all just insane. Maybe the heavy metal people are right. What if wisdom is, is to be the insane person because the world itself isn't sane? What about that? And I, I perceive that this also is grasping at the wind. Again, he's giving us his premise up front. He's going to, the conclusion is that it's all empty if it's under the sun and if it's our heart speaking to us. Ultimately, nothing can be understood by humans. Great start, Solomon. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases their sorrow. The more you learn, the more you realize how ridiculous this all is. The smarter you get, the more you realize that smarts are actually kind of just air too. But yet we keep learning. We have this kind of thing. The world is corrupt. It's a mess. And the more we learn about the world, the more we see how depressing the world is. Good morning. <laughs> Again, nothing changes. Uh, four through seven, nothing's new, eight through 11. Life kind of sucks, 12 through 15. And nothing can be understood, 16 and 18. It's all a big circle, just like the nature he, he, he presented. All of it's this big cycle. So that's the premise. If we're going to approach life from a completely non-biblical perspective, that's our starting point. Let's build from that because those are what you'd call premises or truths that we can all agree on. This is all just a stupid existence. So let's try to find meaning in it. Why are there some people that are happy and there's some people that are not? And let's build from there the purpose of life. So then we get to chapter two. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this is also vanity. Again, not a verse you can pull out of context. This is not an argument to go party, right? And I've actually seen people use Ecclesiastes to be like, see, the Bible says eat, drink, and be merry. I should be eating and drinking. Okay, that's not how we use Ecclesiastes, but how do you even get into it with somebody who they're just so happy they found that one verse that made them, uh, that allowed for them to do that? Here's what I love about Ecclesiastes it's honest. Like, isn't this just a breath of fresh air? You can read the Bhagavad Gita and it's just filled with fluff. I can read the, the Analects of Confucius and it's like, well, it's, there's some wisdom in Confucius, honestly. It's, it's, there's some good stuff there. But at the same time, it's just this guy's opinion. Right? I can read any of these great works, I, you know, and, and, and they seem to not ever come to this point of just straight honesty. And I just, given the date this was written and how it just comes alive today, it's because it's honest and it's true. 
I said my heart, come now, I'll test more. Let's look at mirth as a worldview and as a perspective. Let's look at foolish living and give it an honest review. And how does this work? What, is it, what does pleasure do for us? So let's say we want to live for pleasure. All we want to do is, is, is um, airsoft and get a truck and eat Skittles. And that's going to be our life commitment right there. Let's take a look at that. Um, intellectually, that's a good place to start. One of Solomon's things that he did when he was young is he made a place called the, the House of the Forest. It was one of his palaces, but it was a party palace. He made himself a bachelor pad, even though he's married to like 100 women, right? And the, the, the House of the Forest of Lebanon was completely committed to partying. So Solomon did this. He made a party shack, right? And anybody who went there, it was full carnal, full whatever, anything goes. And he, he, played, he made this place because what if just living for food and, and alcohol and sex, and what if that's what life is all about? In, in the fact that it's all a big cycle and we only live once, um, what if we went full carnal and lived it up? And I actually don't, like, not to advocate for living for carnality, right? But let's think about this. If a kid grows up in a Christian home and they feel like they've been constrained their whole life, isn't it an honest instinct to think, well, what if I just went all in? If you never, like, resolve that, like, that's a problem because you don't know if you're living for God because you chose to or because you're actually choosing the best option. So this is a dangerous thing to say and, and even have it recorded, but let's think about mirth as a lifestyle and give it some attention before we just say, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, right? What about? Why not? What if I have money to buy whatever experience I want? Shouldn't I try the virtual reality? Why not? What's the harm in it? And as a believer, I don't think we should be scared of that because we live in a culture where this is a prevailing worldview. This is a religion. And to be honest about this, we have friends and family that they live for the party on the weekend, right? They live for the next show on the television set or when the next movie comes out in the genre that they like. They're living... <laughs> You know, we, we have people in White Bear that go out and dive in the lake every winter, but they spend the whole year planning for these polar bear, polar bear plunges. They live for it. Everything else is vanity or, or grasping at the wind, but they're diving into icy cold water together with oil rubbed all over their fat bellies. That is something to live for. And that's mirth. It's living for entertainment, concerts, sports, books, shopping trips. I don't know if you meet people that they worship shopping right? It's all they can think about. This week, I'm going to go shopping, and I'm going to do this, and they look for the deals, and when they get a deal, it's like winning the lottery or home improvement, right? I just want to live for, oh, we'll get to that philosophy. That's coming up. He actually has home improvement as a philosophy. Vanity at the end of verse one, there's an emptiness to it that's there. The end conclusion is noted at the beginning, but let's work through it. I said of laughter, verse two, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? So this idea of just partying or giving yourself over to it, today we call this hedonism. It's a philosophy. You're just going to live for yourself, and you get mad with the pursuit of folly, simpleness, complexity. And you're okay with it, right? I'm going to take a beer can and bust it on my head. And everyone around you laughs. Awesome, that's so great. And it's madness. It doesn't make any sense. But you become okay with that. I'm just going to live for stupid. And stupid's okay to live for. So this hedonism doesn't, where life doesn't provide emotion, we then go to other places to create or find something that feels like emotion, right? Regardless of what you feel like in the morning, 
I felt great last night. And there's this idea that it does, there is an allure to the fact that there is something that gets triggered when you party or when you have fun. And that's not so bad. But it is cheering for something that's artificial. Like when we were growing up, it was can't miss television. Here's that show you have to tune in for on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. Or you'll miss out. What you miss out on is talking with your other friends that are also living for a fantasy TV show that comes on once a week. And then you all talk about the TV show together. And it creates a buzz. And you get what I would call fake expertise. Now, I see this so much. But the idea is you live for things that you can gain expertise in, but those things don't matter at all. Let's take fantasy football, for example. There are people that invest hours and hours and hours in getting expertise in stats about grown men crossing a chalk line with a ball. It's a completely vacant activity, but because I know tons about it, I feel like I've gained expertise. And when I share it with other people that are like-minded, then we are sharing an expertise area, but that expertise isn't in anything real. So you have communities of people that have created fake expertise knowing a lot about irrelevant things. Right? And this is true of almost every kind of pop culture, fandom-based group of people. Humor then comes along with this. To what end is that? It, what, end, what does it accomplish? Well, it doesn't accomplish anything because the goal of hedonism is not to accomplish anything. It's simply to go to the next thing. And so you need this ongoing cycle of things that get put into your life. So there is a certain appeal to it. You can just be stupid. And live that way. And what's the difference? And so that idea or that worldview is something that it's, I said of laughter, madness. And I said of mirth, what does it accomplish? Like, what's the good of all this stuff? Proverbs 14, 13, even laughter at the heart is sorrowful, but, in, but the end of that is mirth and heaviness. So it, it sounds like mirth is something weightier. Why is that? Because entertainment, even when it's with other people, is essentially a selfish activity. I do it because I enjoy it. So you fed yourself, and yourself is going to die and become dust of the earth. So you avoid that thought as much as you can, and you especially avoid anyone that makes you think of the fact that your life is limited. Because that's a bummer, right? Don't be such a bummer. So never asking the question is how you do it. Verse 3, I searched in my heart, again, he's not asking the Lord for help here, how to gratify my flesh with wine. I'm just going to get drunk. While guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under the heaven all the days of their life. So basically, I became a drinker, but I kept my wits about me. Right? I'm going to drink, but I'm not going to be so drunk I don't think about my drinking. Right? This is a miserable drinker. I don't understand that. So what if we set aside foolish stupidity and now we do grown-up stupidity is what he's doing. I want envy and want and comfort. So I'm not going to drink and get drunk. I'm going to drink enough to where I feel the effects, but I still keep my wits about me. I'm going to do adult drinking. So that's the next stage versus just the party drinking. So while guiding, maybe if I drink responsible without madness, verse 2, then I can live for my flesh and pursue all these good things in life. A little, a little drinking isn't so bad. And I'm going to lay hold on folly, an impossible endeavor to do this, right? It, it still is an intangible thing. Yet folly gets tried and it gets tested, verse 1. And he's going to do it. So verse 4, I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. That's the home and garden network. What if instead of just trying this, I, I kind of focus on building up my house. 
Verse 5, I made myself gardens and orchards. I plant all kinds of fruit trees in them. That's what Steph and I are working on right now. We're going to plant some apple trees. Maybe life is better if I grow my own food. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. So he becomes an achiever, right? This is what you see people, this, today we call this adulting, but it's just as vain as being a party animal. The end result is you're still pleasing yourself and it keeps going. And, you know, and in this, he's working hard. I made my works great. So if you're going to do something, do it right, right? And this is, you don't need God to come to that conclusion, right? You can, you can just be a solar panel engineer and say, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it with excellence. I'm going to do it with perfection. And there's a value in that. But what's the value? What, what is the eternal consequence of excellent work in whatever area we're doing things? And again, this is a philosophical exercise, right? So there's no conclusions until we get to the end of the book. I acquired male and female servants, and I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all the men who were in Jerusalem before me. So he's gone from party animal to adult drinker, and now he's gone to home and garden network, and in verse 7, he becomes a boss. He starts to be in charge of other people. By the world's standards, isn't this a successful path? Right? He's moving past the immature things to the mature things. The servants here uh, in the Hebrew, I think the proper way to read servants is to read employees. Right? He has people that work for him, and he covers their cost. When they're born in his house, it means they're, he's successfully got families of people living out their lives in his home. Um, and then they would work for a wage, and they would do this. First um, Kings 5.13 has 30,000 Jewish men getting drafted by Solomon for projects. So he becomes a major corporate boss. Right? This is a big boss kind of thing. First Kings 10, uh, and, and also in Second Chronicles, it reads like this, just to get a sense of Solomon's pursuit of these things. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 600, 666 talents of gold. That's where we get the number 666. He's making a boatload of money. Besides that, from the traveling merchants and from income traders and from all the kings of Arabia and from the governors of the country, and King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold, three minus of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. It filled, so you'd walk into this party house and it was just gold shields and armor everywhere you looked. It was posh, lifestyles of the rich and famous. Solomon did it. This idea that he says more than all people before, like I, I did this better than anybody else. You know, it's arguable that Solomon was kind of unprecedented and still is fairly unprecedented in the wealth that he gathered. But he wants us to know how far he pushed things. Ownership, life is then about owning things. Like the more people I control, the more meaningful my life is. Um, there are ruins that exist today uh, that indicate that Solomon sat on the middle of trade routes that connected the entire planet at the time. So the trade routes that would go north-south from him and the trade routes that went east-west through, you know, you get as far east as you can on the Mediterranean, you got to go right through Israel to get out to the, the Silk Roads or out to China. Uh, there are indications that Solomon had a trade network that really captured the populations of the earth at that time. So more wealth than we would arguably have uh, at any period in history. So God put him in this position, and he has it. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers. 
the, the delights of the sons of men and the musical instruments of all kinds. So if you got money, why not spend it on weird stuff, right? So I don't just need workers, I need musicians. So he had his own, you know, music shows. Special treasures would be treasures or gifts of state. Uh, when someone would come to a king in the ancient world, they wouldn't just bring money to Solomon because he has all the gold he needs. You'd bring weird stuff to Solomon, things that he couldn't get anywhere in the Middle East. So this is part of what he's saying where he collected all these delights and these things. All of Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold, not one silver. For this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Remember in Deuteronomy it says that kings shouldn't gather to themselves wives or soldiers and armies? Like he's breaking the laws of God here and he's doing it because this is what the world says success is. He stationed the chariots and cities with the king of Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are, from the, which are in the lowland. He got to bring in male and female singers. It says, I acquired male and female singers, which means he had musicians that were just at the court. They were employed by, and he supported these musicians. He then became, with all this money he had, he started to support the arts. Because then that's what you become philanthropic when you have more money than you need. So he started to support the arts. He had his own rock stars and movie stars all living in his house. The people that were trained to entertain were his people trained to entertain. And he controlled the entertainment industry. He had this appetite for these kinds of things. So Solomon and the delights of, of the flesh, or in the Hebrew it's tanung bed adam, everything that delights the descendants of Adam. And that's that phrase of um, the delights of the sons of men. Translated as, anything that made people delighted, I gathered into my house. And you could come to my house and be entertained. There were fire thrower, fire breathers. There were jugglers. There were people that knew how to train bears. Like anything that delighted human beings in the house right there. Probably had some programmers making great computer games. All that stuff. Musical instruments. If you've listened to the same musical genre for more than two years and you hear a totally new music genre, sometimes it just makes your eyes tune in, your ears tune into it because it's just something different, right? And that's part of what music, musicians are always doing is looking for a slightly new phrase, slightly new turn. So he's living for music. He's living for home improvement. He's living for delighting other people as much as he can. Phonetically speaking, the, the instruments here, the shaddah, um, is the only use in the in the the Bible? Uh, it had to do with usually had to do with a harem. So musical instruments of all kinds could be interpreted as like an instrument you play. It could also be a human being that you play, right? And they would delight people in certain ways. So the weird sort of stuff that people get into. Uh, the Canaanite word for shaddah is actually the same word as breast. So like when you read that, the delights of men and the musical instruments of all kinds, you can keep it PG, but you can go as far R or X-rated as you want. That's the point of the verse. Anything you can imagine was in the house of the forest of Lebanon. He went there and he did that. All kinds of tools and equipment for this would be how you could also read the musical instruments. Again, I don't want to get too into this sort of thing. But the idea is more than just human beings, he, he gathered all the equipment that was meant for pleasuring people. And he played and he, and, he, and he had fun with all of it, so to speak. 
So, verse 9, I became great and excelled more than all those who who were in Jerusalem before me. Also, my wisdom remained with me. That's a problem. (laughs) If you're going and, and becoming great, you know what? If you're offering free parties to people, you will become famous and great. Everybody shows up for the free party. Why not? So he becomes great not because of his character, but because of what he can give people. And this is one of those things that, you know, you become really, really rich and you can offer people things and that fame feels really awesome for a season. But when the spigot gets shut off, so does the fame. So Solomon achieves this level of prominence, verse 9, fame, recognition. He's known, he's famous, he's known all over the world, right? He has his own Facebook page. People subscribe to his Twitter and TikTok channels. Everybody knows Solomon. It must have been a deep struggle for him in verse 9 to still have wisdom hanging around. Like, you want to kill that wisdom if you're living that kind of life. And it's, he's careful to tell the reader, and I think this is what he's saying in verse 9, he wants us to know that he did all of this with full awareness of what he was doing. He was doing it as an experiment. Great excuse, Solomon. Right? It also destroys his families. But the lack of money that's typical, typically something that refutes folly, well, I'm too broke, I can't do that stuff, but if I did have the money, I would, and I'd be happier. He's trying to, it doesn't matter. Like he's done it and he's not happier. So all those things look really alluring and indeed they do. That's why they call them seducing. They actually look seductive, right? But it doesn't necessarily get him there. So he gives an honest assessment. He keeps his wisdom. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. He needs to stop listening to his heart, but he's, this is an exercise. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and all the labor which I had toiled. And indeed, it was all vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Even by earthly standards, there was just nothing in it. It was a lot of work to get those gardens. He did a huge credit card spree, spent all the money. But at the end of the day, it didn't do anything. And he's checking his heart, realizing my heart is in the same place it was before I started all this stuff. I'm the same guy. I have the same issues. And if anybody had the capacity to do all this stuff, I think in verse 10, that's what he's trying to say it. If, if my eyes saw it, I did it. And if anybody had the capacity to full-on go into sin, he did. Yet, does the labor actually give the heart joy? And under the sun, he's realizing that it's not there. This process of accumulation. And I think it's important for Christians. I think this is why this is a tough book to teach to, to immature believers. It's important as Christians that we recognize there is a lure to sin. And it's real. And it's right there. And if your eyes can see it and you can click on it, it's hard to walk away from that. And it's an honest reality thing that we live in today. Right? More so than, I think, other generations. But it's not new under the sun. Solomon has wisdom regarding this stuff. Solomon, 1 Kings 11, had many foreign wives as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, Cellulites, those are the larger women, you know, men in tights. Any more, Grant? No? It does, it's, it's always funny. I don't know why that cracks me up so much. From the nations of which the Lord had said to the children of Israel, thou shalt not intermarry with them, nor will you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to all of these people. He had 700 wives, 
princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. The problem with the heart is it never gets filled. And that's a reality under the sun. You don't need God's revelation. All you need is to check your own heart. Has it ever gotten filled up? Have you ever had enough of those things that take you away from God? I looked on all the works. So this is a slightly different approach to it than just saying God said don't. (laughs) He's like, okay, I did. And then I looked at it and it didn't lead to much. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. To work is to nurture something. And in nurturing it, we're doing something God's commanded, but we're not doing it to admire ourselves. We're doing it to nurture and help other things to grow. And he says, all was vanity. Again, the word there, habel, vapor, breath. It all just went poof. It didn't amount to anything. Grasping for the wind is a poetic way to say it's fruitless or pointless, unless you have tried grasping the wind and you've ever actually got it. But you can grasp at the wind a long time and never actually catch the wind. There's no profit in it, he says. He's returning to these things he brought up in chapter 1. There's no profit indicates that he lost time, energy, resources, and even money, and he never got back what he put in. That's the other thing with sin or entertainment or living for hedonism, is you always put in more than you get out, right? Which means you have to work harder and toil harder and enslave yourself more to get the stuff that never pays back. There's no profit in it. It's an economic exchange. It costs more than it, it gives. All that work, all that effort, the privilege, the accomplishment, the fame, it really never fills the gaps. And he was on every talk show. Like, he did all that. Under the sun in this life, you have this weighty thing called wisdom that keeps nagging intelligent people. Here I am, and it doesn't seem to work. Under the sun, where all life exists, if you want to live for the world, go for it. Like, honestly, again, like, don't take me out of context. Like, in the spirit of Ecclesiastes, if you really think the world has something to offer better than the kingdom of God, go try it. And don't do it halfway. Do it all the way, and I pray you don't die in the process. But go after it. And I honestly, this is one of those things. If you think the world may have something, then don't hold back. All I would say is, like Solomon, just keep your wisdom about you. Don't abandon the truths that you also know in the kingdom of God. And what that will do is torture you until you return like a prodigal son going, yeah, there's just nothing out there, right? Keep your wisdom about you. So when your inwa kicks in and you get depressed and you realize there's nothing in all this garbage, then I think that brings you back to the kingdom of God. But it leads to despondency in verse 11. It leads to this sense. And I think it's important to like sit on this for just a second. So in America, there's an article about suicide prevention The United States of America is the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Percentage-wise, we could argue about the Solomon thing. But the general speaking is that the amount of people in in America that are wealthy by world standards over 10,000 years is virtually everyone, right? We have all of these things. Even just with the click of a button on a TV set, even the poorest of people in America can see the most vile of things. Easy. Easier than ever. Yet the suicide, attempt, the, the suicide attempt rate is 1 million per or 121 suicides a day in the United States of America. Self-killing, why? We have everything that we could possibly dream of. New York Times says we're, our suicide rate is at the highest it's been in 30 years right now. Why? 
And we may have some answers that we're positing at that, but the big spiritual issue is we have an issue. San Francisco Federal Reserve reports that all else being equal, suicide risks are higher in wealthier neighborhoods. But wait, I thought if I had more money, I'd be happier. It would solve my problems. Previous studies found that people that make over 75 grand in a year, that's a tipping point in terms of happiness. You don't get happier after seven, 75 grand a year. There's also a happiness effect that people that are under a certain amount of money, people that can't pay for their food and their rent, that that's, there's also a suicide rate for the poorest of the poor. But it's weird that there's a matching suicide rate on the richest end of things too. People that have more money than they need. CNN Health reports that in 17, 18, and 19, there was a 4% increase in, in uh, overdoses of drugs. Between 2019 and 2021, there was a 50% increase in drug overdoses. While it's COVID, everybody's staying home. Wait, everybody gets more time than themselves and there's more suicides? What's that say about our spiritual health when we take a good look at our own wisdom or take a break with things? 108,000 people died of drug overdoses last year in 2021. 108,000 people died of drug overdoses in 2021. More than 20 million people ages 12 and older have reported having a substance abuse problem or a disorder when it comes to the consumption of things. Food disorders, alcohol disorders, marijuana, cocaine. Marijuana use in the United States has increased exponentially. Why? Why do we need drugs to make us happy? Why do we need all these things? In America, we're so wealthy and we have so many problems. There's a spiritual gap here that Solomon talked about thousands of years ago. You can have it all, and it's never enough. And that's even more despondent than being broke and wishing for things. At least there's hope when you're poor. But when you're rich and you find out there's nothing there, there's not even hope left. You're like, wow, I have everything the world has to offer, and there's nothing there. Verse 12, then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can a man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. And then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Now let's examine all of this. Like let's take this first premise. What's wise, what's mad, what's foolish? And he's thinking through it all and defining these elements and breaking them down in human behavior. This is kind of a, not just a philosophical experiment, but a psychological experiment. What succeeds the king? He, there's a note here for the reader to pause and just think on this for a second. Even for the king, there isn't anything lasting or worthy on the earth. Even for the king. Who succeeds the king? Who has more than the king does? Right? You could be at the top of the world and there's nothing there. And what he's found is wisdom exceeds folly. So you don't need the Bible to tell you that. You don't need the Torah to say living a wise lifestyle actually is, has more benefit and contentment than living a foolish lifestyle. So he's weighed these both out, and wisdom simply has superior results to folly. This is why people can be not Christians and have wisdom and live a wise lifestyle where they save up, they pay their bills, and they actually get to that ground where they have enough to eat and drink, but they're not pursuing after more and more and more all the time. They're content. And that wisdom is actually a more mature, more adult way to go than hedonism or just living for yourself. I like the idea of light exceeding darkness. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, that's yithrone or advantage. There's just more profit in it. There's a more excellent way to live. So when we're talking to a hedonist, like I think this is great for evangelism. 
let's not deny that they're going after something they think is okay or they think is valuable. And the, 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 we're saying, that well, that partying you're doing the weekend, that's not fun. That's not real fun. No, to them, it's real fun. And they think it's great. And so when we talk to these kinds of people, like, let's help them move a step forward. Like, is this a fruitful lifestyle long term? Are you ever going to have enough of it? Does it ever bring anything back? Or do you spend more than you take in? And those kinds of thoughts are what brought Solomon to the point of saying, no, wisdom is better than folly. But we're still not looking at things of heaven. We're still living under the sun. So wise might not be divine, but it's better and it has intrinsic benefits. There is a value to living a wise lifestyle. And you don't need to put that under some sort of a heavenly mandate. So, and it chases away the darkness. You can live a life with clarity, balance, and actually be successful and have results and never really serve a God. And that's a real thing. Yet, a good hedonist will look at the world and say, well, then what's the point of it all? Right? And that gets to verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I, perceive, yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. You have to be foolish to put your eyes into foolish things, but the wise can do the wise things, and they can do it just because it's the right thing to do. At least it's better to be tuned in and awake as you go through life than to be zoned out and drugged up. At least it's better to have your head clear, right? It's interesting. We had a young man come to Bible study. And he's like, I'm just working on getting like my head clear because I've been smoking marijuana for so long that I can't think straight. It's like, yeah, that's a good step forward right? Let's move you closer to the, to the truth of this universe by getting your head to work and actually consider truth again. Like you're so dazed and confused, you can't even think about the things that matter, right? So at least getting straightened out is better than that. So the same event happens. What he's talking about by the same event uh, is that we all die. Verse 15, so I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise that I said in my heart, this is also vanity, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than the fool forever, since all that now will be forgotten is in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? We all die. So I think this is a great thing. Kind of a frustration a little bit. If we all logically say wisdom is better than folly, so if we make that argument, but we all die, then doesn't the person of folly have a right to say, well, what difference does it make? We're, you're going to die and I'm going to die. So we all have the same end, so why can't I just have fun while I'm here? Why is wisdom somehow better than that? Again, these are really tough thoughts. These are deep thoughts. Enjoy it while you got it. Live it while you have it. Live it up. Why do we think being wise will benefit us more than the fools have? And he's saying it from his heart. This is not from his... From, his, from the wisdom of God, and that's a key distinction. This is also vanity. If we all die, it really doesn't matter. Only your own vanity stands up. So you're working hard, you're partying hard, do whatever you want to do, do it hard, and it really doesn't matter. There's no point and there's no purpose. Again, this is where you get like, this existence we have is for the believer. This is the closest to hell as we're ever going to get. This world sucks. But for the unbeliever, this is the closest to heaven that they're ever going to get. So that's what they're trying to achieve. The closest version of heaven they can possibly produce for themselves under the sun. And that's the heart of what's going on there. Verse 17, if this starting to clench your heart up a little bit, it does with Solomon too. Verse 17, therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. 
for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. How quickly does the joy ride turn into frustration? I think it's usually in your mid-20s, right? I can't live this way forever. So even for an unbeliever, it's not hard to see how empty it all is because it is empty. That's the truth of it. And I don't need a revelation from God to see how pointless it all is. All I need is the evidence that we all die. Right? At some point it all ends and nobody really cares and there's nothing left and in a generation or two nobody even remembers your name for the most part. And that's not even true of Solomon. We know Solomon's name, but for most people on earth that's not even the case. So thinking your life matters more than it does, that's vanity. You're thinking your life matters that much. That's grasping for the wind. Really, those who don't think, these fools, these people that just keep their head in madness, you know, that's maybe less distressing than this realization. I think it's, as mature believers, I think we need to think through this because at least it's truth. At least there's some reality to it. The planet's going to die, the sky's falling, the oceans are going to rise, dust to dust, that's actual, like, it's all insane. It's all nuts, so I give up, right? If I exist and then I die, why endure it at all? You're right. <laughs> Why do we need meaning? Like, think of the, so I think this is, this, is, this is how we deal with people that are at this point in their life. Wait a second. Why do you think, if it all doesn't make sense and if it's all worthless, then why is it in your heart that's a dissatisfying thought? My dog doesn't care that my dog's going to die someday. I don't think my dog's even aware of that. Right? Why is this such a distressing thing for a being with an eternal soul that we think about eternity that's natural? But we have lots of beings on the earth that are evidence that not every being thinks about their eternal salvation or not salvation or existence at all. And I don't, again, I don't need the Torah to come to that conclusion. All I need to realize is that I'm different from my dog. Maybe I am. Maybe dogs have secret thoughts we don't know about. Um, but there's this idea that it's, it's all vanity and it's all this work and that it's distressing to him, that's a point of evidence. The fact that there's distress in hedonism, that's something that proves there's something different about humans than animals. We, we get distressed about that. And then, I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I have to leave it to the man who will come after me. <laughs> he's, he's realizing like everything I do in life, I got to leave it to my kid. And I'm lucky I have kids I would love to leave everything to. to. But there's this idea that we work super hard. When we lived in Ohio, we put in this great garden. It had goji berries, everything in the garden you could eat or use for medicine. Like it was the challenge we gave to the gardener. Like we want a garden, but we want everything in it to be usable. So he made this beautiful garden. He put it in. We spent way more than we should have on that thing. And then we left because God called us to come to St. Paul. We had to just leave that beautiful garden to these people who had no idea what they had in that yard. And then we were in Centerville, and we put in that beautiful wood-framed garden. I think some of you saw the Centerville house, didn't you? Or is that before? No? Beautiful garden, strawberry beds. We had four rows of strawberries that we had all the strawberries we needed, and we could share them with our friends. It was beautiful. A year after the new people bought the house, they took the fence out, put grass in, mowed it all down. So what was the point of all our work? It was worth nothing. Solomon could build up the kingdom, but he's got to hand it to these idiot sons of his, right? And he can see that coming before he dies. He's an old man and he realizes that his kids are worthless. What a horribly distressing place. And so you get this other thing that sets in. I would call it bitterness, right? You live this kind of life and in the end you're just bitter because these kids don't deserve it. They don't know what they're getting. 
I've worked my whole life and I've done all these things and I got to hand it over to these people. And that too is rational. That's a worldview that comes in. So in verse one, we had hedonism. In verse four, you get materialism or achievementism. I'm just going to do stuff. Verse seven, we got ownership. Verse nine, we got fame and recognition. Verse 11, despondency. Verse 16, we get bitter fatalism, right? What's it all mean? Then in verse seven, we get bitterness or even kind of angry, grumpy old men, right? He's going through all of these worldly worldviews as they, trans, as they go through life. These are stages of life. Not Erickson's stages of life, obviously, but these are Solomon's stages of life. Hedonism, materialism, ownership, fame, recognition, despondency, that we call that a midlife crisis, fatalism, bitterness, anger, which then leads to despair. And you get to be an old person going, what was life worth? Verse 19, and who knows whether it'll be wise or fool. He's still talking about his kid. Who knows if my kid will be wise or a fool? Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, in which I had shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. I'm just thinking about myself. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave it his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity. And here he adds, and a great evil. This is wrong. Andrew Carnegie, when he died, did not leave his steel industry wealth to his kids. He actually turned it into the Carnegie library system across America, built libraries for people, didn't give a dime to his kids. And the reason he didn't do that is he's like, I love my kids. I don't want to give them anything. They have to do their own work. They have to do their own toil. So under the sun, you can work your whole life, and it's actually, at the end of it, it's a fairly worthless journey because you've just done everything for yourself. And this is a seed of wisdom, too. We can keep this. We don't live long enough to see the impact of most of our labors. We're human. We're limited in that sense. Heck, I don't even know the impact of the labors I did 20 years ago. Thousands of middle school kids went through my classroom. I only know the impact on about three or four of them. So we do this work, and we work in this world. We don't actually know the impact of it. But nowhere near what Solomon experienced with the level of work he did and the level of labors that he put in. So we have this moment of despair of all the labor actually resenting the work itself or asking the question, why did I work so hard? You hear that a lot with older people. Why did I put so much time into this? And here's my wisdom. You, you can put as much time in you, as you want into work, but you only get to raise your kids once. You've heard that wisdom, right? That's the result of this kind of life. Like turn and, and live for the right things. Verse 21, for there's a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This is vanity, and it's a great evil. Rehoboam is one of his kids. 1 Kings 12, 14, Rehoboam's an absolute fool. He's an idiot. And Solomon's seeing his successor coming up through the ranks, and Rehoboam's going to split the nation. He won't even keep Israel together. So how... How extreme God gave these experiences to Solomon so that he could write this book at the end of his life. There's nobody that can say, oh, I got it worse than Solomon. Solomon's had it better and worse in almost every regard. And he says it's a great evil. How does he know it's evil? Like, this is one of the things we ask. Like, who says this is evil? Why is this so wrong? You know, again, I can point to my dog, and he has no worry about what, if he has offspring someday, he's not worried about his offsprings being fool or foolish or wise. He doesn't care. 
Like a lot of like mom dogs just walk around and the puppies hang around with them, but they when the puppies grow up and move off, they don't they could care less about what happens to the puppies. So why is this this idea of despair, this emptiness, this even taking 50 minutes to think about it this morning? We as humans can put ourselves in a mental position where we despair and think about these things. But but that itself is evidence that there's more to our soul than just living our life and dying. And I don't think this is even a spiritual attack from Satan. This is the natural course of events under the sun. This is us making our own misery. We do it to ourselves entirely. No spiritual intervention needed. This is natural despair that comes out of this. Natural depression. Consider the opposite so we don't despair too much this morning because we are here to enjoy an awesome week. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, my family... Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Whatever we do for the kingdom, it's not in vain. And what an alternative to Solomon's perspective. Thank God we don't approach work just working for ourselves. That we do something for other people. For what has man for all his labor? Verse 22 of Ecclesiastes. For, all, for the striving of his heart for which he has toiled under the sun, for all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This is also vain, vanity. Why? Why is it, does it bother us so much? Why do our hearts get sorrowful when we think about ourselves? Christian counseling services are like when somebody's depressed, they're probably thinking about themselves too much. When they're angry, they're thinking about other people too much. And when they're anxious, they're thinking about the world too much. And the solution to all three of them is the same. We need to think about the Lord too much. To the point where our ungodly friends actually say that to us. You're just all about Jesus all the time. And you're like, right, and I'm content, and I have peace. How are you doing with that? What's the trade? So Genesis 6, 5, God saw the wickedness of man, and it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. You don't need a revelation from God to know that our hearts lead to evil. And sorrow and despair is absolutely an evil experience. And that's what Solomon's saying here. It's evil in verse 21, and it's vain in verse 23. This is not a fruitful way to live a life. It's a dead end. Even at night, I think he's thinking like, when you go to sleep at night, and I've heard this too, like when you go to sleep at night, what fills your heart? Is it anxiety? Is it depression? Is it inwa? Is it, is it anger? Is it the joy of the Lord of God, that was a great day. Thank you, Lord. That was amazing. I feel so full. So even in the night, the heart takes no rest. Under the sun or without revelation from God, that's exactly where you end up. In the night, that's what your heart sits on. And they lay awake and they worry about it. I think it's worse for people that have servants and you own things because you're, you're going to bed at night thinking, okay, what do I got to get done tomorrow? And there's this anxiousness. Insomnia is an increasing phenomenon on the, in America today. There's a great pain in this. C.S. Lewis says, I love this. C.S. Lewis talking about the needs of humanity. All needs have natural means to meet them. We thirst, there happens to be water. We hunger, there happens to be food. We shiver, and there's fire for warmth. It is completely illogical that a being would exist with needs that cannot be met. Yet here we are, we hunger for meaning in a world without it. 
And I, it's just brilliant. And I think C.S. Lewis is reading Ecclesiastes is where he's getting that from. I desire to fly, but I can't. So okay, let's, let's critique C.S. Lewis a little bit. I am not designed to fly, even though I may desire it. But I have a brain that can design a plane or a hand glider. So maybe C.S. Lewis is right. I don't know. I, the idea of pondering existence is a weird thing. Like the birds of the air do not worry about what they wear, but yet they're clothed with the robes of Solomon, right? So we're made for this self-reflection. Why? Why are we made for it? Uh, this comes from the American Journal of Psychiatry. Uh, I won't read all the authors. It's got multiple authors called Revi Religious Affiliation and Suicide Attempts, 2004 uh, psychiatry article. The Hilton study showed not only that membership in a highly religious culture is linked to lower levels of suicide, but also that higher levels of participation with specific religious groups are linked to lower levels of suicide specifically. It's interesting to note, however, that of the top remaining nine nations leading the world in male suicide rates, all are former Soviet communist nations, such as Belarus, Ukraine, and Latvia. Of the bottom 10 nations with the lowest male suicide rates, all of them are highly religious nations with statistically insignificant levels of organic atheism. Why are there less suicides amongst people that have a belief system? And we're not even getting into like the differences between belief systems. Why is that the case? Why does meaning help sustain us and feed us? <laughs> All right, I think this is funny. I'm just going to add this because you don't want to upset the atheists when you write a science journey. You don't want the atheists on your case. So they add this little note in there. It's important to keep in mind that atheism and agnosticism have no inherent prescription against suicide. So higher rates of suicide amongst agnostics and atheists should in no way be considered a failure of those belief systems. Nonsense. They're a failure because they don't feed the soul. And, but even our scientific community, they're like scared to say it. They're scared to admit it, but we can. And we can say, yeah, life without God is meaningless, empty, and the logical conclusion is why live it? Like that's not an untruthful thing to say. Meaning comes from somewhere other than ourselves, and we have to look somewhere other than ourselves to get it. So yes, they're complete failures of worldviews, but in the science community, they won't say it. I'll even probably get emails about saying that. There's four heuristic truths of the world, things that are inherently true. These are premises. Life is monotonous, so you can party as much as you can. Wisdom itself is sorrowful. Knowing things hurts. Wealth is futile. It doesn't result in things. And we all die. So far, we're doing good with Ecclesiastes, right? Those are truths I don't need the Bible to prove. And let's start with those premises. Verse 24, nothing is better with those four premises Nothing's better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. There's something distinct about working hard and being content with what you have. And I don't need a re revelation from God. I can work under the sun and see that, that there's something true about that. I don't need to believe in God to see that there's better contentment amongst religious communities than amongst atheistic communities. I don't need any sort of revelation to know that. I can see the facts. So he's saying the same thing. Philippians 4.11, not that I speak in respect for what I want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am, I will be content. This is part of the Christian worldview. I'm just going to learn to be content with what I've got. Am I still breathing? Do I still have my wits about me? Am I fed? Am I rested? 
Praise the Lord, I got what I need. Everything else is icing on the cake. Trips to Glacier, icing on the cake. Great bacon, icing on the cake. San Francisco Federal Reserve has found a new benchmark. It's $34,000. Um, anything, if you make as a family unit or as a, a unit, if you make less than $34,000, your suicide rate increases by 50%. And I think this is why he says that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. We should work and earn enough to provide for ourselves. And that's a non-religious premise. But if that's there, then, then suddenly there's something that you can realize that you're good enough and you've earned enough to pay for your food and your rent and that life can go on. Life's a gift from God. It's from his hand. Be satisfied. So some see this as really simplistic. Some people take this verse way out of context, like this is under the sun thinking here. Um, or, or what we call Epicureanism, eat, drink, and be merry, right? Just live a simple life, be, be there. Um, Jews actually argued about removing verse 24 from Ecclesiastes. Like this has been one of their debates over time because they got sick of explaining it to their students. Like we're tired of having students take verse 24 out of context. That is not the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. It's a very sad midpoint conclusion that they've drawn that doesn't, it's not the completion of it. So this idea that verse 24 is everything is something we need to watch out for. That said, there is earthly wisdom here. If you can relax and just enjoy the ride of life, good for you. Like what a blessing. And that blessing's from God too. And I think in the church often we think that if we want to live for God, we got to do these extreme works. No, we can eat and work and pay for our family and you can live a life that's holy and righteous under the law just doing those things. And that's not an excuse to not do what you're called to do because you're scared of it, but that is something to say that let's not judge each other. There is a very simple form of Christianity, which is to work and eat and pay for your family and live life and be content. And there's something, it's from the hand of God. That's not fatalism. That's not despair. But there's something to say that I'm going to trust that God gave me what I need in life and I'm happy with that. And that's okay. And Solomon seerly, see, breaks his rule a little bit and he clearly sees that as a thought from God because it's not a thought that's produced under the thon, sun. We can't, without God, we can't come to the conclusion that those things are the hand of God. So there's this element that like, there, a belief in God's existence can provide a balm to this ugly truth of the world and that there's something worth that. Some of the critics of Christianity say it's just a, it's just a soothing aloe salve for people that have troubled souls, that they're somehow weak or broken and they just use Christianity to cover it up. I actually think that fits really well with what's going on in Ecclesiastes. There is some value to, to seeing that your life is okay under the hand of God. We enjoy our labor. It gives us meaning. Verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than me? <laughs> I don't know if I need to interpret that. He's got it all and he, he knows better than anybody that that's something he can do. Verse 26, for God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he might give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So this is why we don't take 24 out of context. This also ends up in kind of a dead end. How does that work? Okay, verse 26, for God gives. It's implied that God gives, but it's not named in, at the end. It's called vanity and grasping for the wind. So <laughs> I think what's going on in verse 26 is there simply isn't such a thing as atheists at this period in history. They don't exist. So when Solomon's dealing with faith, he's dealing with faith in other religions right alongside a Judeo, a Judeo faith, right? So he's, 
he's kind of looking at that. The, the word God there is implied. It should be in italics in your Bible. It's not actually a word that's in the verse in the Hebrew. It just says, for wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. So there is such a thing as wisdom and knowledge under the sun. I don't know why they put the word God in there, um, other than they, it, they feel like it needs to be there. Um, but Solon, Solomon hasn't talked about God yet in the book, other than that he said this is good before God. It's something God sees as good. There's a natural benefit to living with wisdom. And this implied wisdom and knowledge are gifts from God is something that is implied. It's not actually in the Hebrew. It's clear here then that some have more natural gifts than others, and under the sun that's obvious. Wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man is good in sight. There are some people that have wisdom and knowledge, and there's some people that don't. You've met, these, you've met people wiser than you, and you've met people more foolish than you. And there is some difference between humans when it comes to just raw level of intellect and wisdom that they have. There are fools and there are wise people. So there's this idea that we, we see that there's differences between people, and, and Solomon wants to establish this as part of the experiment. So we, we see that wise people tend to thrive over foolish people, and we don't need a revelation to understand that. There's a lifestyle of wisdom that's good. But, but this too is vanity and grasping for the wind, which doesn't let us off the hook at the end of chapter 2. We have a few more chapters to go through. This too is vanity and wisdom. How is it vanity? Whoever gets what they want on earth is still getting what they want on earth. So let's say you live a wise life and you live a good content life. You eat, drink, and you, you manage to get through life and you're happy. It's still simply on earth. So for non-believers, at least gain wisdom. Like talk to your heart and at least figure out wisdom in how to live an orderly life and get the benefits of a wise lifestyle. Don't lay awake thinking about it. Like try to just realize that there is no rest apart from God, that the heart's turmoil is just going to keep stirring outside of God. And for believers, it's good for us to be reminded that this is an essential truth that we need to remind each other of. Like, we need to find meaning, and it can't necessarily be in our work. We turn it over, and we wait for God's blessings and God's knowledge because we don't trust our own hearts with that sort of thing. So we start with truth, not ideals. Let's start with facts, even if they're hard to hear, and even if they're counteractive to what we enjoy, which is the blessings of God. When you've lived so long with the blessings of God, we can take that for granted. But let's not do that. Chuck Colson says, life isn't a book. Life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time, and theology has to be lived in the midst of the mess of life. In the midst of the fact that under the sun, this is an empty vapor of a life, very short one, actually. If there's an eternity of time, and we only live about 70 years of it, it's not that long of a life at the end of the day. Philippians 4.12, I know both how to be abased and how to abound, Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. We don't get our strength from ourselves. That's a tough concept, even for people that have grown up in Christian homes. How do I get strength? Where does it come from? Because I can't seem to generate it myself. So that's the problem we end with. Chapter 3 is the famous verse. We'll get into that the next Bible study, um, which is the bird song, right? A time to live, a time to die, a time to all those sorts of things. But we're now coming to terms with that cyclical nature of life. And in chapter 3, Solomon's going to express that in a really poetic and a beautiful way. Um, and at the same time, he'll end saying, and this too is all vanity. Like, you think very highly of yourselves.
Um, but let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Ecclesiastes. We thank you for an honest book. And Lord, you know how much I love this book. And I just pray that your spirit can be heard through the truth, even when we set our relationship with you to the side and use the wisdom and minds you gave us. Lord, help us to do that with maturity and with wisdom. Help us not use Ecclesiastes as, as an excuse for sin, but use Ecclesiastes as a way to do a deep dive on our hearts, to really inspect how we believe and what we believe about life. And Lord, may the wisdom of Solomon just be imprinted on our hearts as we go through today. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.